0: This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. So second week, the best of the votes go to a series that we did last October called History. History was five weeks spent looking at one singular chapter out of the New Testament. Luke chapter 15. And if I could have picked one story to bring back one message that I felt like was very important, that would have been it. Because as I shared earlier the message that kind of was encapsulated in that series is what provoked my family to give up our life that we knew and to leave and come home to start what we know now as Vortex. And it all started with this simple idea that life is a lot like a story. Life is a lot like a story. Many of us have seen that firsthand where we have sat back and we have watched something unfold in the life of somebody that we love. And while watching that, it was like watching an epic story happen right in front of us. Some of us have been to funerals. And that funeral was one of an end of a story and it the story was so good that we hated that it was over because life is a lot like a story life is a lot like a story so what makes a story great what is the thing: What are the things that, when plugged into a story, they begin to elevate it and make it something that engages us and captures our attention? The first thing is that every good story has characters, has good characters. Every good story has good characters. You can't get away the from the fact that. When we engage story somehow, it wraps itself around the persona of a character. Because the story of Braveheart would not be the same without William Wallace, right? It just wouldn't be. Forrest Gump, right? The whole movie is about one character. And it's the beautiful unveiling of that character throughout the course of what we know as the last century. Good stories wrap themselves around good characters, but it doesn't stop there because a good story doesn't just simply have characters, a good story has conflict. How many of you have? read a book or watched a movie where somebody simply wanted something and they went about getting it and there was no conflict and it was a great story. Doesn't work out that way, does it? And life is a lot like a story. Because good stories always have significant conflict. But the great thing about stories, the majority of the time, stories to some degree provide a sense of resolution. There is something something that happens in the wake of the conflict. So I would like to go ahead and take you back to Luke 15 and go through the whole chapter again. I'm going to do this pretty quickly just for the sake of time today. This is one of those passages of scripture where Jesus is teaching and it's really easy to get confused about who he's talking to. Because the theme throughout Luke 15 is that which is lost. He tells three separate stories about things that were lost. But he is talking to a group of pastors. He's talking to the religious leaders of his day. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But in the midst of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were also present, what the Bible calls tax collectors and sinners. That's us. All right. That's that's all of us in the room, tax collectors and sinners. And so in the middle of that congregation that Jesus has gathered, there are the people that everybody thinks they're getting it right, and there are the people that everybody thinks they're getting it wrong. And it's quite easy to get Jesus' audience confused because he's talking about lostness. He's talking about things that are lost. And most of the time when this passage is read, when these three stories are deciphered for us, it's in the context of someone who is lost. But there are two crowds that are hearing his story. So the first parable that Jesus tells in verse 4 through 7 is about a shepherd That loses one of his sheep. Now, he is not just a shepherd who owns three sheep and he loses one. He's a shepherd that owns a hundred sheep. And he loses one. All Right? This is, and and, and understand that in Jesus' day, wealth is primarily uh, gathered through agricultural means. And so owning a lot of sheep would represent a significant amount of wealth and investment. And he tells in this story that he loses one sheep. The 99 are there. He loses one. And so his reaction to the lost sheep in the midst of 99 that are still there is to leave the 99 and to go find the one. And in verse 6, as Jesus is telling the story, the shepherd says to his friends and his neighbors, will you come rejoice with me? I found this lost sheep. Jesus elaborates a little bit, which actually kind of gives us some insight as to where he's going with this. In verse 7, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner than the 99 righteous people who did not repent. He is beginning to narrow the focus in this passage. Then he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. Again, Jesus is Doing something that in our modern era we, we lose a little bit in the translation because we lose coins all the time. I could come to your house and visit your couch and just slide my hand inside some cushions and most likely I could find some coins. Okay? And so when we read this in the modern context, most of us are going, Who cares? You lost a coin. To to own a a coin in those days typically meant that that coin was actually going to be some sort of precious metal and it was very valuable. Uh, And and for for many of these families, actually their, their savings were encapsulated in these coins. I mean, a whole life's worth of savings found in this one gold coin and this woman loses the coin. So when she... Loses the coin. She does what most of us would do if we lost our savings and it was in the form of a coin. She tears the whole house up and down, right? And eventually finds the coin. And in verse 9, the woman says to her neighbors, Rejoice with me. Come rejoice with me. And Jesus again begins to elaborate in verse 10 that there will be rejoicing angels Over a repenting sinner. Then he goes into a story that at the time that I read this and began to study it, really just took my world, crumbled it, and rocked it. Because he starts to tell a story about a father who has two sons. And Many of you know, many of, some of you don't, that, that my wife and I had tried for a long time to have a baby. And uh, by God's grace, uh, three years ago, found out that my wife was pregnant. Uh, my little girl now is two years old. But around that time, I was reading this and we had found out that Amanda was pregnant. Everything that had to do with daddies just wrecked me, like commercials on the TV, you know? Daddies and daughters. You see, y'all remember this commercial where the dad is outside changing the headlights in the girl's car? Do y'all remember y'all seen this one? All right. Wreck I mean like on the floor in tears wrecked me. Because everything that had to do with this experience of becoming a father was somehow I was just more deeply connected to it. And so I was studying this passage of scripture and it was The story that Jesus tells about a a father who has two sons. And the younger of the two sons says to the father, I want my share of the inheritance. Now, again, in a modern context, that, that sounds like a kind of a bold thing to do, but not too terribly unheard of. I've, I've seen families that in their later years decided to go ahead and divide the inheritance so that they could watch their kids enjoy it. Okay, so so it's not, this is, but in this day, in Jesus' day, essentially what the younger son was to say to his father was, you're better off dead to me. I would I would rather right now that you just be dead, so can you just go ahead and give me my inheritance? Now go back to what I said a few minutes ago. Financial assets were not held the way that we hold them in in the bank, in the system of cash, right? So the, the father would have had a holding that would have been things like real estate or cattle or sheep. And so to liquidate his assets, to actually give him his share of the portion that he would have got, understand two sons, that meant that the... Estate would have been divided three ways. It it was always divided number of children or number of sons plus one. The older son got a double portion. All right. So it would have been divided three ways. And he would have had to liquidate literally a third of his estate. And he does it. Out of the request of his son, he does that. And gives him in liquid cash assets, here is your inheritance. And the Bible tells us, as Jesus tells the story, that the son sets off for a distant land and leaves the father. And he basically squanders his inheritance in wild living, becomes very poor. And as Jesus is telling the story, he ends up in a servitude role where he is now actually feeding pigs. Again, go back. Jesus is a Jew. So as he's teaching this, he has a very Jewish audience to be the person that's feeding pigs, pigs being unclean to Jews. This is about as bad as it could get. He's fallen as far as he could fall because now he's so hungry as Jesus tells the story that he wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating. So one day he wakes up, comes to his senses and says to himself that even the men who work in my father's house as a servant have it better than I have it. So he sets off. And um, he comes back to the father and I I love the imagery that Jesus uses because as he's telling the story, you get the impression that the father sees him from a great distance. Uh, Jesus uses the term from a long way off. It leaves us with the anticipation that the father never gave up hope, that he continued to look and to long for his son to return. And he runs out and he meets his son. And he wraps his arms around him and greets him. And he he kisses him and he calls his servants in and says. And this is when the story gets a little bit tricky. and, and, And Jesus begins to expand on what he was teaching earlier. He calls his servants in and says, go get a robe. Go get rings for his finger and go kill the fattened calf. Because my son that was lost is now found. He that was dead has come to life. All right. In that moment, the father does not receive him as he was hoping, as a servant. He receives him as a son. And most of us have heard that story, the prodigal son, and it ends right there. But that's not where Jesus ends the story. Because there was an older son. That while all of this was happening, was out in the fields working. And as the party is beginning to get crunk, right? And music is probably going, right? There's probably some beverages floating around. The older son comes in from the field, having just worked a full day. And he says, what is this? What is this? What is, what is, this? What, what is going on here? Well, the servant, a servant tells him, your your brother has come home and your father has had us killed the, the fattened calf and, and we're going to have a party tonight to celebrate the fact that your brother is home. Now, this is one of those moments that unless you know a lot of that backstory, you don't really get what's going on. All right, Remember, how much did the brother get? He got a third, right? A third of the estate. Because he was the younger brother. So that means now after welcoming him back in. He's now welcomed as a part of the family. That means that all of this that was what this guy thought was his. That this is what he's been working towards. That he has been earning from his father. Now all of that is in compromise. Because his brother has shown up. And at the end of the story. The father leaves the party and goes to the older brother who refuses to go in and says this in Luke 15, 31 and 32. My son, the father said, you've always been with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And the story closes with the father and the brother outside of a party that's just getting crunk because the son has come home. Jesus, in the middle of this story, does something that is absolutely tremendous. The first thing that's in your notes today is that Jesus, through this chapter, this Pivotal teaching redefines what lost means. Because all throughout this chapter in Luke 15, Jesus is dealing over and over again, over and over again, with the concept of lostness, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and now a son who is lost. And in this last moment, again, go back to the audience. Jesus has these people in the audience that we call Pharisees and Sadducees, the people who were supposed to be getting it right. He also has in the audience what the Bible tells us as sinners and tax collectors, the people that everybody thought was getting it wrong. And as he goes into this story about the family with the two brothers, Jesus shows us that there are two types of lost. The younger son is the type that we think of when we think of being lost, that you are lost in your failure. Lost in your failure. And most of us, when we have encountered that story throughout the years, that's really where it's been left for us. He blew it. He got a third of the estate, and he went and blew it. He gave it over to wild living, which is insinuated as being drunkenness, prostitution, and ends up completely broke. He blew it, and he's obviously lost in his failure. But at the end of the story, there's a party going on, and one of the sons is in the party, The other one isn't. At the end of every story Jesus told, there was a party. There was rejoicing over that which had been lost. And at the end, now, as Jesus is examining this family, there is a party again, but one of the sons is not in the party. And Jesus shows us in the other son that we can be lost in a different way outside of our failure that we can be lost in our faithfulness. That we can be lost in our faithfulness. You see... When we do not have Jesus as the center of what we're doing, we can do things that look like they're the right things. But the motivation and the heart behind them is not there. As a matter of fact, we can get so anchored in the fact that we're supposed to be doing this and I am completely glued that I'm going to do that, that we can miss the boat entirely. One of the scariest verses in all the Bible occurs twice in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 14, 12 and in 1625, the Bible says this there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. What that verse means is that I can be completely convinced that this is the right thing to do. Completely devoted, bought in, and sold out. And the end of that way is death. We can become lost in our faithfulness. Ultimately, this story is not about the sons. It's the beauty of this story because this story is about the father. It is not about a son that wouldn't blow it. And it's not about a son that refused to come in. It's about a father that welcomed the son that blew it. And a father that wouldn't stay in the party when his son refused to come in. And what we see in this is that we're all lost without Jesus. We're all lost. Every one of you, me, we're all lost without Jesus. It's not about us getting a checklist of stuff. I just need to do this and this and this and this. And this. If I can just plug all of that stuff in, if I can just get my, right, my checks and the right stuff to do today. You see, I can get lost in being faithful to that checklist and absolutely miss Jesus. We can be lost in our failure. We can be lost in our faithfulness. I love that as Jesus is telling this story. About the two sons. We see something about the heart of the father. Because these two sons are telling stories about themselves. And the father ends up correcting them and saying the story that you're trying to tell right now is completely wrong the younger son returns home having blown it and what is the story that he's telling about himself what is he saying about himself at that moment he is saying i am no good I have absolutely ruined everything. I've ruined my relationship with my father. I've blown the inheritance that he worked a lifetime to give to me. I've insulted my family. He's saying about himself, I don't deserve to be your son. But could I please be your servant? I don't deserve to be your son. I don't even. And the father immediately receives him by saying, I don't care, you're my son. By immediately redefining the story that he's telling about himself. And the older son is telling a different story. He's saying, I've got it right. I did. I I said, I'm the one that stayed. He left. He blew a third of your inheritance. He, he's the one that blew it. And I stayed. And you haven't even killed a goat for me. I've been faithful, Dad. I've been faithful. I, I, I've got it right. I'm the one. I'm, I mean, Dad, I've got it right. I stayed and helped. As a matter of fact, when that joker came walking up the driveway, I was in the field working. And the father tells him, you've got it all wrong. Everything I have has always been yours. You're trying to earn something that I've already given you. And it's in that tension between the story that sons are telling about themselves and the story that the Father is telling about them, that I see that God has invited us into a story. That he's invited us into a story. That God wants your life to be an epic story that people sit back and look and go, wow, I can't believe I got to watch that happen. I can't believe that I got to see God do that. But most of us are waking up, drinking our coffee, going to work, coming home, washing some towels and putting them on fluff again because I'm too lazy to get them out today. Fluff them things again, like the third day in a row. And Amara looks just like that. You see, we have to make some changes and make some adjustments if we're really going to look at God and say, I don't care, I'm tired of this story that I'm telling about myself, I'm tired of it. I want you, I want you, God, to tell your story through me. So what does it mean to live out God's story? What does that mean? The first thing that's in your notes is that we need to embrace conflict as a healthy part of following Jesus. We need to embrace conflict as a healthy part of following Jesus. Why is it that those of us that love Jesus and want to follow him want lives that are convenient and comfortable. There is no good story that you're ever going to read or that I'm ever going to watch. There's no good story that is absent of conflict. And if there's going to be a good story in your life, you're going to have to walk straight into some conflict. but most of us we want our lives to be like our beds comfortable and conflict free right i don't want i don't want to that's why i don't go camping anybody go camping in here doesn't make any sense people who actually like lay on the ground camping um because every time i pitch the tent and get in there and spread out my sleeping bag and it, i'm always on top of like a rock pile or something just something, and it's uncomfortable. But that's, that's how we live, right? We want to live a life that's comfortable. But the invitation into God's story is going to invite you into conflict. You're going to have to go up against something. And most of you know what that is. So we need to embrace Conflict is a healthy part of following Jesus. This is one of those verses that reminds us, Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen. Iron sharpens iron. And one man sharpens another. Is it comfortable when iron starts sharpening itself? No. It's not. That means there's going to be friction and conflict. But that friction and conflict will knock something off of you that nothing else could get. And we need to embrace conflict as a healthy part of following Jesus. The second thing is that we need to remember that God is more concerned about your character than he is about your comfort. God is more concerned about your character than he is your comfort. What makes a story truly engaging is watching a character develop. That's what really engages us, to see a character who was struggling with something go through conflict and develop and grow as we see this. I love the film Argo. Did Anybody watch that Ben Affleck won all kind of awards last year? And with him as a central character in that, it gives you this entry point of knowing that there was a struggle going on with his family, that he was separated. And I love at the end that because of the realization after going through all of the struggle that he did through that uh, rescuing of the Iranian hostages, he goes home and you see him walk in to his home like I'm here. I'm Whatever whatever was keeping us separated. There's development in a character. And we need to be aware that if our stories are ever going to be propelled by the gospel, that we're ever going to truly live God's story in our lives, we're going to have to embrace the fact that God wants to develop your character. And that's going to mean that you're going to have to be uncomfortable at some time. that God is going to make you uncomfortable. He's going to allow you to go through things that are not comfortable because it is ultimately the best thing for you. Many of us know that because some of y'all are a little bit like me. I'll use the term adipose endowed, um, just a little maybe thicker than you're supposed to be. Um, And we know like, if I'm going to make a change in life, if I'm going to make a change in life to get healthier, what's going to happen? It's, gonna, it's not going to be comfortable. right? It's, it's going to require sacrifice and pain and difficulty and struggle, and ultimately it's going to be better for me. Look at this verse in 1 Samuel 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. See, the Lord doesn't see the things, doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by an outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, you may look like you've got it all together. The people that work with you, the people that live next door to you, they may think, man, that guy, that girl, man, they just got it. They got everything in this whole world. It's just in the palm of their hands. Everything. I mean, it's just they've got the life that everybody else wants. But God sees all the way through that outward appearance to your heart. And he is not satisfied with leaving you right where you are right now. He's not satisfied with all of that brokenness and hurt and pain existing there. He's not satisfied with the stuff that you struggle with being something that stays something that you struggle with. Ultimately, when God sees into our our hearts, God wants to take us from where we are on that journey to get closer and closer to Jesus. And the last thing that we need to do if we're going to Live out God's story is that we need to let Jesus take the leading role in our story. Because for far too many of us, right now, the person that's ultimately in the leading role in your life is you. For some of you, it's not you, it might be your kids, it might be your spouse, it might be your job. But if we're going to truly live out God's story, if we're going to really embrace the story that God wants to tell through us, we have to let Jesus become the leading role in our story. Because ultimately, He's the one that we want to follow. It's His story that we want to see unfold. Because if we continue to live our story, it's going to be most likely not a great story. But if we can live out His story, I believe that through that we have the potential to make history. Because God doesn't tell bad stories. Now God doesn't tell stories that we always hear. The greatest stories that God's ever told them pretty convinced that we've never seen them. But here's what I do know. He knows what matters. He knows exactly what He made you to do. And we believe that every person in this room, every one of you, God designed you to make an eternal difference in the life of somebody else. And so we believe that God wants us to get involved in His story. That He is inviting us into His story. And that through that, when we make that difference in the life of somebody else, we're really making history at that moment. Your name may never be written in a textbook. There may never be a monument that's erected to you. You may never win an award. But when we serve well, and love like Jesus, we're making history. When we love a kid and serve a family, we're making history. When people got here this morning and folded bulletins and stuffed them and put notes so that you guys could come in here and sit here and listen to God's word, making history. Because there's nothing that's more historic Then ultimately, the life of somebody changing trajectory to an eternal destination with Jesus. So God has invited you. Into a story that he wants to tell through your life. And you need to be aware of that. Stepping into that is going to result in conflict. It's going to challenge you. But ultimately, God owns the resolution. And he holds you when you let him become the leading character in your story. Let's pray. God, today as we pause, we just want to ask that for those of us that are in here today that are Reminded again that your story is phenomenal and that we want to be obedient and to follow it. God, today, convict us if we've wandered away from the story that you invited us into. And today, if we've never actually taken a step to really get closer to that story and really abandoned the position of trying to lead my own story, God, just again, convict us. So today, with nobody nobody looking around, Everybody just quiet, and still, heads bowed, eyes closed. I just want to ask you a really simple question. The truth is in your, your heart, your perspective as God speaks to you right now, are you living out God's story? Are you living God's story right now? Or are you living your own story? your story might still be filled with conflict, but you're probably not getting in the end what you want in life. Or are you really living God's story through you? Now just as a generic question, it's, there's no pretense in this. I'm not pushing for any kind of thing, but if you're here and today as you have have heard this you just kind of say hey you know what I recognize I've been living my own story but I don't want to do that anymore I really want to live God's story in my life would you raise your hand right now awesome a lot of people raising their hands right now is there anybody else that would say that Let's pray for those people that today feel like they want to step into God's story for them. God, for those of us that are in the room that recognize that we have not been living out the story that you would have us to live. But God, that you have laid before us the opportunity to walk into a story that is profound. And so God, would you please guide us? call us Lord as we blow it and start to wander from the path would you convict us and remind us that even if we've blown it completely you still welcome us back as your children And don't let us ever get so consumed with the checklist and the faithful attitude of continually trying to please you and earn your favor that we forget that you're the father and that we're the children and that we simply get to enjoy that relationship because you've given it to us. So God, for those of us that are willing to take the first steps on that journey, please lead us and guide us for your name.